Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos Foreign Policies Economics Podcast. Every week we take two data points. We use them to explain what's going on in the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, Deputy Editor at Foreign Policy, joining you from Berlin, Germany. As always, we have with us FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor Adam Twos. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cameron. So... We're going to, in the second part of the show, be talking about Christmas, which is coming up rapidly. I think there will be some obvious numbers to discuss there. But first, as always, we want to discuss something that is presently in the news. And that number is $768 billion. That is the number of dollars in the U.S. military budget that just passed both houses of Congress. The U.S. Senate gave final approval to the National Defense Authorization Act. It calls for $770 billion in spending. That's about 5% more than last year. I've talked for weeks about the importance of this legislation given the global threats and international challenges that face our country. When it comes to military spending, really, the military-industrial complex, in a bipartisan way, always gets what they want. Of course, you know, the U.S. military is always up to a lot. That's, that's kind of the point, I guess, when your budget's over $700 billion a year. It got me thinking about whether it makes sense to take a segment here just to consider the military as an economic actor. So maybe we could start with some context, Adam. How big is this annual U.S. military budget compared with, say, I don't know, the market cap of private economies. How about compared with the GDP of other countries? What comes to mind there, Adam? It's, it's very large. Uh, <laughs> it's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Okay. Um, we could very, just end the segment a, here. This is a big number. <laughs> just, I mean... <laughs> exactly. Com- Should do more of those. Done. Yeah, it's like, you know, <laughs> this is, we're talking real money here. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, comparing a flow like this, so this is an annual budget. Like, you know, and it's even bigger if we did it over 10 years. Like, you know, many of Biden's civilian programs right now are accounted for over a decade, which make them look enormous. So imagine if this was, it would be 7.68 trillion dollars over 10 years if you compared it to his say build back becker program i mean but karen comparing a flow like that to the a stock variable like the market capitalization of a company is, is not terribly meaningful but you could compare it to annual sales so i had a look the fortune 500 list of the world's largest companies by sales um puts walmart top with 559 billion and a staff of 2.2 million so that kind of, you know, that makes sense. If you think about Walmart's footprint in American society and all over the world in terms of its supply chain, so $768 billion on the De- Department of Defense side, 2.2 million uh, Walmart staff, and about 2.46 on the military side, depends how you count the National Guard Reserve. So 1.2 million active duty or closer to 1.3, actually, 
780,000 National Guards and Reserve and 720,000 uh, civilian DOD staff. So bigger than bigger than Walmart, um, much bigger than Amazon or China's state electricity grid, which are number two and three in the corporate hierarchy. They come in at 386 billion in revenue. So much bigger than them, almost twice as much. And this seven, six, eight billion figure for American defense spending, it doesn't include CIA, it doesn't include a chunk of the national security establishment, broadly speaking. So it's a lot bigger. All in all, the US spends more than any other country on the planet by a huge margin. You made that, I think, fascinating comparison with Walmart in terms of the size of the US military. And then that got me thinking about how it seems like pretty much every other public service has been sort of privatized or, or attempted to be privatized over, over the last recent over over the last few decades. Are there any attempts to privatize parts of this responsibility? And and on the other side of this, have military supply chains have they stayed more insulated from this whole globalization push than the rest of the economy? Oh, they're absolutely caught up in these in these trends that you you highlight. But the really big business here is not in soldiers of fortune so much as. Um, you know, in Walmart or, or Amazon, it's in it's in logistics. Um, that's where the really large scale privatization has happened. Not at the cutting edge so much as in the the backroom work. And the the all volunteer force that America created from the seventies onwards in the aftermath of Vietnam was dependent on the one hand on the National Guard reservist formations when they do an all out mobilization, and on the other hand from the nineteen eighties onwards on the privatization of the logistic branch. That's what keeps, as it were, the manpower, uh, and one should say now the woman power, the fighting men and women in the front line, um, balanced. Uh, what they aim to do is to maximize the phrases, the tooth to tail ratio. That's a phrase to savor. The tooth to tail ratio needs to be optimized. What, what, wait. And what, in 1985. Yeah, well, I was going to say, what does that mean? Yeah. The tooth to tail ratio is like the maximum amount of warrior fighting power for the minimum amount of logistics train within the military. Ah, got it. And this started with the Logistics Civil Augmentation Program launched in 1985 on cue by the Reagan administration. Dick Cheney on cue was key to this, connected to, of course, Halliburton a key supplier. But it wasn't just Republican cronyism here. The, the big breakthrough for LogCap, the logistics civil augmentation program, came in 1995 with the Clinton administration and the Bosnian intervention. And from then on in, really, over the following decades, contractors like um, Kellogg Brown or Root, who is a branch of Halliburton and Fluor and DynCorp, became huge suppliers of key services to the US military. So in America's most recent wars, the ratio of private contracting personnel to men and women in uniform is about one to one. So in 2008, CENTCOM, that was responsible for Iraq, Afghanistan, Central Asia, Middle East, had 266,000 contractors working for it, which was roughly equal to the number of military personnel at the same time. So half a million altogether, half of them private. And those included um, 163,000 contractors working in Iraq. And then within this contracting system, it's globalized. So a fraction only of the workforce is, in fact, American. So about 15% of the overall contractor workforce for CENTCOM in 2008 was U.S. citizens. 47% were Iraqi and Afghanistan-based local nationals. And then... 100,000 people out of this workforce of 260,000 were third country nationals. So these are like the seamen on 
you know, modern oil tankers. They come from Bosnia, Macedonia, Turkey, the Philippines, India, Uganda, Kenya, Nepal, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, right? So you have a whole multinational workforce, as you'd expect in the Gulf, which is typical there. And the percentage of those third country nationals was, you know, anywhere between 31 and 42% over the period of the big push in Afghanistan and Iraq. So yes, a hugely multinational back office team supporting the cutting edge of American military power. Wow, those are some pretty stunning numbers, Adam. Back to thinking of the military as an economic entity. Um, If it's one that we're investing in, it does get me wondering about just basic economic accountability. I mean, you know, if we're thinking about this as an investment, is it even a good investment? Uh, By most measures, I don't think it's controversial to say we've lost most of the recent wars we've been in, right? So I don't know. Is that a fair measure by which to judge whether the military is worth what we're spending on it? Yeah, I mean, I think you can't avoid that question, can you? And, and, And it basically comes down to your assessment of America's foreign policy over recent decades I mean, we don't even really need to get into that to ask the question, what are the trade-offs here? Like, What sort of defense, shall we say, what sort of national security do different types of money buy? Stepping away from, as it were, the question of how we evaluate what it has bought. And there's some really interesting calculations on that on that front. So there, there are, in fact, calculators, little programs. You can find them online. Um, variety of different NGOs, think tanks host them where you can run your own personal preference for America, the posture of American defense strategy, and ask, well, if, for instance, we did away with our commitment to defending Europe, how much would that save us? And uh, in fact, Barry Posen has, has uh, done that calculation. So if you if you strip out America's exorbitant forward posture and tell the Europeans to basically defend themselves, how much money would you save? And he thinks it's between 70 and $80 billion dollars if you just simply said, let NATO take care of itself. And you'd get most of that by taking out, I think it's like 15 army combat brigades. So these are like highly mobile, readily deployable American army units. Um, The army's overall budget is $150 billion. So that's another way of thinking about it. If boots on the ground is the problem, well, why don't we just reduce the number of army soldiers we can deploy? So, you know, if you half the size of the American army's budget, you would no doubt restrict its ability to do forward deployment. So somewhere in between, presumably, is the sort of sensible medium. If you, you know, if you look at Germany, it spends half what America does as a share of GDP on defense. And that, I think, generally speaking, by most people's estimates, renders Germany pretty near to defenseless without the United States. It's badly organized. It's not allocated the right way. So this is the kind of terrain on which one could have a sensible debate, I think, about what sort of options would enable America to reduce the scale of its military spending and nevertheless guarantee all of the essentials of national security? Finally, uh, to take that point, Adam, about money that could be saved here, I wonder if that could also be turned on its head a little bit, sort of presented as a kind of economic stimulus all its own. I mean, all things being equal, does it make sense economically to think of military spending as a contribution to the overall macro economy? I mean, and would that also be true if spending on the military were coming in the context of a, of a war? 
I think that generally speaking, that's the right impulse, I think. It's very important not to think of public spending, military or not, as sort of burning money, throwing it out the window. I mean, it generates revenue streams, incomes and jobs, full stop. That's why Congress likes military spending so much. And the vast majority of the military's spend, even though it's directed towards international security, is at home. And that was true even of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So to that extent, you could say, yes, absolutely, this is a stimulus. Um, it's in fact tantamount to an industrial policy. Arguably, it's the one industrial policy that America has, you know, and the, and the, the stories are legendary of the innovative dynamism unleashed by the, you know, the blue sky R&D outfit DARPA, which is, you know, part of the Pentagon budget and, and sponsors high-tech development. But I think the, it's quite another question to ask whether this is the best use of money or whether it promotes or detracts from growth relative to other potential uses over the long term. And in the American case, one of the examples that really overshadows this entire conversation is the example of World War II, right? The ultimate good war, goodies versus baddies, the good side wins. And furthermore, it has the huge advantage that it rescues America from the depths of the Great Depression. I think everyone recognizes that narrative. And it's certainly true that huge spending did have that effect, right? It reversed the hesitancy of the New Deal in the late 1930s to spend enough. Incomes during the war surged. Consumption barely fell. America's World War II experience was absolutely not that of Europe or Asia at the time. But the thing is, if you look at the growth path for the US economy um, after the war, it ends up pretty much exactly where you would have expected it to be if you'd extended the trend from the 1930s forward. So there isn't actually any kind of a permanent shift. It's more that it generates this surge. So now you, you could say, well, it's all very well, but you know, who knows whether without the war, that kind of support would have been forthcoming. It might simply not have been available. America could have slumped as it was threatening to do in the late 30s, which is fair enough. But it's kind of tantamount to saying that like wars are the devil's way of getting Congress to appropriate, adequate public spending. But one does have to ask, I think, in the current moment, whether those 760-odd billion couldn't be spent on other things that would also secure America's security in a deeper sense. And what I'm thinking, of course, is something like the estimates for the necessary climate spending. One has to say, I think, that the question arises of whether it's better spent on F-35s or better spent on batteries and solar power and windmills and a whole new generation of renewable energy technologies that we need. Well, I feel like we're on the verge of veering into a theological conversation here a little bit, uh, you know, questions of original sin, whether our acts of evil can be redeemed in one way or another. I don't know. That may have to wait for another podcast to get to the underlying questions here. In the meantime, I'll be pondering those B-52 bombers and that cool maintenance job you were referring to. Uh, okay, we'll leave it there. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is... He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. 
and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in in in, in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me and. I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Welcome back. So I promised a Christmas data point, and here it is. It's $859 billion. That is the total amount of money that Americans are expected to spend on the holiday this year. And that's just between the dates of Thanksgiving and the 25th, the actual day of Christmas. National Retail Federation predicts holiday shopping sales will reach a record of between $843 and $859 billion. I don't think this needs any other introduction, so let's just dive right in. Um, Adam... I thought we could start with the macroeconomic implications here of Christmas. Obviously, the uh, amount of economic activity in the United States is is vast. Could you give us some context here? How, how does that compare with the rest of the year? And how does that compare with other countries uh, in relative terms when it comes to Christmas? Yeah, it's, uh, it is a staggering number, isn't it? I mean, you just have to keep putting things in perspective the whole time. So, US GDP is, you know, we reckon on about $20 trillion, and that's all in for the whole year. Perhaps more relevant in terms of a point of comparison at this point is the $6 trillion figure that you get if you look at retail sales. So that's really kind of, I think, like for like comparable, this 859 number you've quoted. I've seen over a trillion dollars quoted for the holiday season as a whole from October through, I guess, the beginning of January. Hmm. If you narrow it down to the precise element that's Christmas as such, the numbers are a little bit more modest. If, if you poll people, so rather than using the retail industries figures, you ask people how much they're planning to spend or likely to spend on Christmas. It's like 1500 bucks per household. Um, so over 130 million households, that's a spend of about 198, $200 billion on Christmas specifically, rather than the sort of general retail rush that overtakes everyone in this period. And of that, about a third is present. So maybe 500 bucks per household. 
hmm. on presents. And then there's clothing and festivities and everything else on top of that. Like you said, travel is a huge part of this. So it's a big slice, especially of the retail pile. I mean, really, for, for retail, this is the critical part of the year. This is where they need to do really good business. And I think that's probably true globally. It frankly gets really foggy when you try and get good numbers for global retail. Uh, you're in a world of conjecture, it seems to me. I mean, global GDP is in excess of 80 trillion, but that's, as it were, what comes out at the end, what washes out of the entire economic process. In terms of retail sales, the bit we can count, which presumably is big, you know, substantial businesses rather than mom and pop stores, they figure it's about $25 trillion in global retail sales. So if if it was the same as the US and it was like 15 to 20% of that annually across the whole holiday season, say from October through maybe Chinese New Year in January, you know, you'd be looking at a volume of three, four, five trillion dollars at least flowing through this system in a huge surge. It's it's a massive wave of money spent, however you figure it. Okay, now now to shift to some of the maybe more microeconomic implications. I mean, all this aggregate spending breaks down into individual households celebrating and spending. And that, that got me wondering about how do they all pay for all this spending? I mean, I, I know plenty of households in America might not have excess savings. So what happens then? Are there specialized Christmas debt markets that you can tap into? Well, certainly a lot of households do go into debt at Christmas. Um, I, I frankly remember doing it myself um, mm. uh, earlier in my career when we were more stretched. Um, and it's quite common, I think, to see a surge of of um, credit card borrowing at this moment of the year. That's what the specialized Christmas debt market is. It's, it's credit cards. And it's not by accident that you'll see, you know, in your mailbox right now, a huge surge in credit hmm. card offers um, because they are cashing in on that. They're looking to hook people on high cost credit. The effect is pretty significant because uh, a survey recently found that about 30% of people took, who took out credit card debt last year for the season haven't paid it back yet. And that's where the, the cost really begins to build up. But in many societies, this is taken account of by the mechanism of Christmas bonuses or 13th month salaries. Um, um, this is completely common uh, across Latin America. Uh, the Philippines has actually mandated it by law. So it's part of uh, normal co employment contracts there. And it's also very typical in Europe. So in Italy and in Spain, it's mandated by law. And in German, mm. Germany, in any major collective bargaining contract, there's always a 13th month, which is paid out in December. Um, to cover Christmas costs. Of course, to a degree, it's artificial, right? Because hmm. the employer is bargaining with the worker over the annual payment. But it's significant that it's structured that way, because in a sense, what you're doing is engaging in a kind of savings agreement with your employer to pay you a chunk of money at the moment when you know you're going to need it at the end of the year. So that's a way of taking account of this. America's rather unusual, I think, in not having this as a, as a very common pattern of remuneration. Yeah, yeah, that's where we have credit cards instead. Um, so um, in doing research on this topic, Christmas and economics, I came across some pretty widely cited research in the scholarly literature, basically arguing that giving gifts itself is a huge economic waste. So basically, the idea here is it produces what they call dead weight loss. Basically, when people are buying things at higher prices than the people who are getting those presents would have valued them. And that's basically what's always going on when you're guessing what people want. And so then this seems to have led to a consensus among economists, as far as I can tell, that the best gift you can give someone is just cash. Don't even bother wrapping it. Just give them people cash. But I guess 
this just raised a broader question for me in, in thinking about this. Um, I mean, does this show the limits of what economics can explain at all? I mean, can the other reasons you might give someone a gift, I mean, that's what we're always doing. Can those reasons be explained in economic terms or is economics just sort of necessarily impoverished? It just can't really grasp what human beings are, are, are up to. Or, or Adam, you can just correct me if I'm just getting the economic research completely wrong here. Well, I mean, it's clearly a kind of one-eyed view of this whole problem, isn't it? But on the other hand, I mean, you've got, to go, you've got to grant to the economists that they capture a rather important reality about gift-giving, right? That, that we often get it wrong. Hmm. Uh, and collectively, we get it wrong on a truly spectacular scale. I mean, just think about it. If we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars collectively on gifts this season, you know, and we all know from, from, from your average holiday party that at least 20 to 30% of the gifts are kind of near misses or indeed just completely wrong. So we're talking about huge amounts of loss here, tens of millions of dollars. It's not, they're not tens of billions of dollars, rather. We're not, they're not, they're not wrong that there's a real risk here. They capture something that's really quite important about gift giving, that you are arrogating to yourself, you know, the right to, as it were, spend a common resource if you're talking about a family on somebody mm. else's behalf. And so there's a really solid rationale for giving giving cash instead. I mean, it's particularly, I think, clear if you think about kids, you know, because on the one hand, like, childhood's kind of the ultimate gig, right? It's the cradle to graduation welfare state, if you're if you're if you get it, if you strike it lucky with your family. But the problem with it is that you have no autonomy. So you get all the benefits that you need, but you get them in kind, right? And the question for children preeminently is how do I get hold of cash? Why? Because cash gives you autonomy. So if you're giving a child a present of cash, um, what you're doing is you're giving them the pleasure of autonomy, the, the joy of choosing. And that's, I think, what the economists are trying to capture in a rather kind of reduced form, that every time you give a gift in kind, you're depriving people of that moment of choice, which for children who are radically deprived hmm. of autonomy in a more comprehensive sense is, you know, we all know the joy that we took as children of browsing. Once upon a time, it was catalogs. Now it's online. And this is quite similar to the argument that's made for the welfare state, right? That it's better to give needy people cash benefits rather than to give them benefits in kind because it deprives them of autonomy. But what this analysis misses is A, the fact that exerting authority by way of the gift may be the entire point, right? So the kid may be a kid and therefore make bad choices. And as a parent, you just don't want to have to deal with that along the line. Or they are autonomous and they can make their own choices. But when you're giving them the gift, you're giving them the thing that you think they ought to have. And that's the point, right? So it's a trade-off of my utility against their utility in a sense. So it can be a power play. It can be pedagogic. It can also be affectionate. I mean, I was thinking this through, like, so what is the logic, for instance, of a child giving a parent a gift? Hmm. I mean, obviously the child could give the parent back some of its pocket money, but the real logic is the child knows something about the parent that they won't treat themselves to unless the child gives it them. So, you know, you know that your mother or father won't treat themselves to a chocolate bar unless you give it to them. And so that's what you kind of knowingly signal. And if you take this all the way down the line, think about the logic of romantic gift giving. I mean, it's all about the signaling, right? So it's a, it's Valentine's. Do you know the code? Do you or your partner or whatever show up with the required gift on this moment? Secondly, it's kind of, you know, can you show up with a gift that's cool or or shows taste, right? Pick a good restaurant or 
treat the wait staff properly or know how to you know show off that you know how to order from a wine list or whatever and then crucially and this i think is the really is the really interesting moment is that what the economists underestimate is the payoff from getting it right right because in a romantic relationship if you give the right gift it's really like winning the lottery ticket because what you've done is to show to your partner that you have guessed their preferences correctly so what you're signaling is that you get them or even better that you know from the a kind of confused range of things they know they sort of like or might like or like but shouldn't like you've somehow given them a version of themselves through the gift that they really like the look of right so it's either demure or it's sexy or it's attractive or whatever it is but you somehow have signaled that to them through the gift that you've given them and that's the big score right then everyone is maximally happy and the economist welfare dials just go off the charts so if you certainly could reframe this in terms of economics but mm. it wouldn't be the welfare game it would be what's called an asymmetric information game in which basically gift givers if you think about dating gift givers compete for attention amongst gift recipients by offering gifts which signal what the gift givers think the preferences of the gift recipients are and the winners are the ones who offer the best bargain in that game right um and the thing there is that cash which is optimal from a welfare point of view totally doesn't work because you can't show up to a valentines date and say here's a thousand dollars because that's basically saying i've no idea what you want i've no idea what you like i just want to signal that i want you and that's kind of the end of it so it would be really the making of a pretty disastrous relationship i mean the one thing that you could imagine this trending towards is prostitution right you can't famously buy love with money but you can buy sex okay well you've persuaded me that that economics can explain what's going on because i think that was that was pretty persuasive and yeah i don't think i can give my wife a gift and say uh, you know ask her if i won the asymmetric game that we were that we're playing um um but uh, uh yeah maybe maybe i'll try it with tongue in cheek we'll see if that works but in the meantime I, I i have to get presents for my kids still so uh if if they end up with cash i'll just direct them to you adam uh i'll blame them if they're disappointed by by the envelope of cash i, I hand them but um but uh I promise you they won't be <laughs> yeah no you're right actually my, my... yet to meet the child that's disappointed by that gift no it's true my son that you what you said reminds me of my son who likes to just kind of count coins in his play yeah. uh cash register that totally makes sense as a kind of mimicking of autonomy yeah or, or grasping towards autonomy anyway we will leave it there Okay, that is it for another episode of Ones and Twos. My thanks as always to my co-host Adam Twos. I want to emphasize that we like hearing your feedback. So please email us at podcast at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at ones and twos pod. That's twos as in Adam's last name, T-O-O-Z-E. And please uh, follow and review us on your favorite podcast app. That also helps. Also, we have an assignment for you. Next year, in the early weeks of the year, we're going to be looking at some data points that relate to what we're calling life cycle economics. So that's things like births and deaths, weddings, retirements, stuff like that. So send us your questions, suggestions for those kinds of data points, and we will try to address them. Also, for this holiday, Adam was kind enough to come up with some suggested reading for yourself. So if you're still looking for a gift for a friend or family member, you can, of course, get Adam's own book, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. 
but also uh, the other books he recommends. So be sure to check out the list at foreignpolicy.com and then click on the page for Ones and Twos podcast. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rossbrow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. 
So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. 